do please uh, keep those uh, page, well, that page open while I see if I can render. Mark, what have you done? This is on tape. People are listening to this in a few weeks' time. Good grief. Right. Can we pray together? One church, one faith, one Lord. Lord God, we ask that in the hearing of your word, you would unite us uh, as a church, unite us in faith, and lead us to praise that one Lord and serve him in perseverance all our days. Amen. Well, I'm afraid, uh, as Mark said, uh, I'm being just back from holiday. Uh, you always have to endure a certain degree of um, the preacher's stories from on holiday. Uh, and I want to begin with a little meditation about uh, the stars, uh, a couple of uh, American uh, stories. Uh, we uh, uh, holiday with Natalie's family in Vermont, uh, up near the Canadian border. And it's a, a part of the world where we're lucky enough to have very, very little light pollution. The other uh, evening, I was walking back to the house uh, where we were staying, uh, and I was just very struck by the stars. Uh, even in England, sometimes, if you can find a, a enough space away from the streetlights, uh, it's, it's easy enough to see the stars. But because I was walking uh, to our house... I was impressed with that feeling um, that all around me, uh, my perspective was changing. The house I was walking to, the trees around me, they were all reorienting themselves. The one thing that stayed exactly the same place was the night sky above me. Just the sense of the permanence of that sky uh, impressed me enormously. Teddy Roosevelt was President of the United States uh, towards the uh, end of the First World War. He had a friend called William Beebe, who was a naturalist, and they had a little ritual uh, when they would meet at the White House uh, for conversation. And it's amazing to me to think that in those days the White House itself was so free of light pollution that they could do this. They would step out at night after conversation about deep and important things, and they would identify a faint spot of light in the left, lower left-hand corner of the constellation of Pegasus. And then they would recite together, this is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our sun. And when they had done that, President Roosevelt, with all his responsibilities, would declare, now I think we feel small enough. We can turn into bed. Another story about stars. We have a friend of a friend who worked for a while in a Ugandan uh, AIDS orphanage. And of course, one of the 
the tragedies of such a place is that the children uh, will die and the community of children around them have become those who know them best. So how do the children around them mourn the passing of a particular child who may die in infancy? Well, what they did in this orphanage is that they uh, cut out, made uh, stars, uh, and wrote the name of the child on uh, that star and put it on the ceiling uh, of the orphanage. Over time, of course, in the nature of an orphanage like that, the sky became, the ceiling became, if not quite covered, then there were many stars there. Two stories about the impact of stars. One, on the powerful. Those who appreciate the rebuke that the stars can offer to our pride, to our own sense of powerfulness. The other a story of the powerless, as those children who had life for such a short time were mourned and significance was sought for them in a a metaphor, a picture that we know is not true. Of course, a, a dying child does not go to be a star. And at some level, this being a Christian orphanage, the children involved knew that full well. But it was a way for them of picturing that this person who had passed was not an insignificant moment, but a star of enduring beauty and worth. And all of us are both powerful and powerless in some measure. There will be things to say from Ephesians to the powerful about pride. But Paul's heart here is for the powerless, for all those who feel that in some way the universe, the stars, out there, life itself, it's all against us, who feel the separation from the way life ought to be. We may not speak of it much, why bother, when there seems to be nothing to be done, we may not even express it clearly to ourselves, but we feel that the heavenly realms are on one side and we are on the other. And Paul walks into that anxiety at the beginning of Ephesians and lays out in these verses the truth about these heavenly realms. They're captured, in fact, what he says in a line from a song that was uh, new-ish to me. As I go from nothing to eternity. Most of us at some point uh, have experienced life in such a way that we feel reduced to nothing. And Paul's message to us is, don't feel that way, because you are those who have gone from nothing to eternity. Our anxiety is misplaced. In fact, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in those same heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, according to verse 3. And in the verses that follow, Paul covers many of these blessings, dividing them into past, present, and future. So do please turn to your Bibles on page 100, sorry, 1173. First, the past. 
From verses 3 to 6, Paul looks at the past, if we can rightly call it that. Because in verse 4, he speaks of a moment before creation. I gather uh, that this week there's been a bit of a fuss in England because Professor Stephen Hawking has come out and said that God is a hypothesis that we no longer need in order to account for the creation. Now, we need to be gentle with Stephen Hawking. Not only has he got his own nightmares uh, to face, but he is one who, in his major book, Brief History of Time, allowed for the possibility of God. He carries no great burden to hit us over the head. He's simply following the lights of his own science. And the danger for all Christians is that we are seduced by the fact that Genesis starts our Bibles, that somehow we are wedded to a particular view, or indeed any kind of view, of creation. Let's remember that we are Christians. We are named for Jesus Christ. The time that concerns us, in a way, is not the creation, but the time, if you can call it a time, that Paul describes now the time before creation. Even before creation came to be, before all the theories of Stephen Hawking, whether they are right or wrong, uh, were set in place, before the extraordinary wonders of the world around us were set in place, God made a decision for you and me. God made a decision that he would have a partner. We've sung of it when we've sung of Christ and his bride, the church of God. It begins to be illustrated for us in the story of Adam and Eve, but is taken up by that greater story of Christ and his church in the New Testament. We do not depend on the early chapters of Genesis for our convictions about how things came to be. What matters in how things came to be is the decision that God has made to have a partner long before there was an atom in space. And in that deciding, what happened was a choice. He chose us in him, in Christ. And everything that is going to unfold in Ephesians sets Christ at the centre The decision that God made before creation was made in Christ. What would he do first of all in Christ and then for those who are found in Christ? Uh, He does not choose us independently so that we can say about ourselves, are we not extraordinarily exalted? No, he chooses us because we are chosen in Christ. Before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in just the way that Christ is, to be conformed to the likeness of this Son of God. In love, he predestined us. A wonderful word, I'm going to ignore it because it comes again in the passage that Mark will preach on next week. It's a shorter passage, so it allows a little more spread. (laughs) 
I can't say it's true for every single individual here that you are predestined for any of the spiritual blessings that Paul describes. After all, I hope as a church we welcome into our midst Sunday by Sunday those for whom it is not necessarily true, those who don't know yet, those who are thinking it through. What he can say is, but for those who have committed to follow Jesus, who've known the assurance of words pronounced over them in recognition of their commitment in baptism and confirmation, and uh, that's been mentioned already, there is the assurance that what they have engaged in in ways that appear to be by their choice, are indeed a personal and individual blessing of what Paul next describes, an adoption as sons. Whenever we get to this issue of sonship, it's always worth mentioning. For all those who may be saying, well, yes, and daughters, presumably. Now, yes, that would be true. But the reason why Paul says sons and not daughters here is that it's not an issue of relationship fundamentally, but an issue of inheritance. In the world that Paul describes, only sons could inherit uh, the blessings uh, of an estate. And that's what he's focused on. So yes, now we could add and daughters, But we must not focus on the relationship side so much here as, although it includes it, as the fact that what is prepared for each one of us is this inheritance. And from the world in which he lives, with its regular uh, system of adoption that went on, uh, Paul takes this language of adopted as sons. But from his more ancient heritage within the people of God of Israel, He can look to that frequent sense of those who are uh, firstborn sons and all the blessings that pass from the father to the son. And because that's the kind of model in which he is working, we can be clear that the, the status to which we are exalted when we are in Christ is to share in the blessings that come to the firstborn son. We don't confuse the two. We don't say we are as Christ, but we share in his blessings. And we mustn't neglect as we look at this section on the past to recognize, why does he do this? Because it's in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the beloved. It gives God delight to work things this way. That decision he chose before the creation of the worlds to to have a people for himself, he did for no other reason than that it gives him pleasure. And you and I are his delight. And the pleasure that he seeks, he passes into action by following the determination of his will. And so, of course... It brings him across the universe, his praise in glory and grace. That's the decision made before creation. But then in time, in what we might call in history, in the present, in verses 7 to 8, we move on to realize that that choice is not made arbitrarily 
or in such a way that uh, it costs God nothing. Rather, this choice, actually, that he made costs him everything. Because it's in him, according to verse 7, in Christ, that we have redemption through his blood. This eternal decision is carried out at unbelievable cost to achieve the forgiveness of sins. The cross doesn't actually come up very much in Ephesians, but it does come up here. That song that we sang, the ancient words uh, from James Montgomery in the 18th century and from the psalmist before that, lift up your heads, you gates of brass. Brass, the most hardened material that the ancient world knew. The most enduring of materials. Even you, you gates of brass, lift up your heads. Be astonished. Be amazed. Find it extraordinary. This unyielding material will bow before this fact that the cross has won the field. It is sin that has caused the separation between ourselves and God. If you take notes, check out Isaiah 59 and verse 2. And it is sin that God himself has undertaken to deal with. This is the lavishing, according to these verses, of his rich grace upon us. Not only that he chose in Christ, but that in Christ he acted in the middle of history to effect the choice that he'd made. There is past, there is present in history, and there is future in verses 9 and 10. In him, in him, in him comes the refrain. But now under him, God delights to unite all things when the day dawns. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let's be clear on this word mystery, by the way. It's a word that will come up a couple of times. It doesn't mean a secret that you can't know about. What it means when Paul uses it is this is a sec- has been a secret but it is now revealed, and I am telling you about it. Indeed, running like a a minor thread through all of Ephesians is this theme that what has been concealed is now being revealed through Paul and through the work of of God's people, the church. God delights to unite all things when the day dawns. Things in heaven and things on earth. I'm sure you know somebody who believes the very weirdest things compared to what you believe. There are many people, I'm sure, who think it's quite weird what you believe. But I guess most of us know somebody who trusts in the most extraordinary things, whether it's a rabbit's foot or the daily horoscope, 
This is, incidentally, a text I suspect is of particular importance. It's interesting to have had Kai Chu leading our prayers. A particular importance to those who are dealing with Orientals. Certainly, many Chinese people continue to believe that the heavens, heaven itself, is what rules life. And it is a distinctive feature of the faith of the Orient. So if you are engaging with Orientals, this Ephesians is something important to bear in mind. Certainly the Ephesians themselves came from a world that believed this. And much of what's going to go on in Ephesians is saying, do not be afraid that somehow what Jesus did was just here and now. It would be that as though all the streetlights were on and you could only see this world. And so part of Paul's ministry is to say, yes, I know that by the streetlights you see what Jesus has done, but let me tell you, turn those streetlights off and what Jesus has done takes its place amongst the stars. There are no powers in heaven and on earth that are not finally to be united by what the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's careful to call him that, the one Lord Jesus Christ has done. He will unite things in heaven and on earth, and it's not just a random picking up of a phrase that he goes in for then in verse 10. He's being quite specific. Ephesians, Orientals, and a surprising number of the rest of us think that there is something out there that stands opposed to us. But no, things in heaven and things under the streetlights, all of them will be subjected to the one lordship of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus, in him, in him, under him. That's why it matters for Paul, just for a moment to go back to the opening verses, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Because it's Christ Jesus in whom all these things are affected. That's the story in verses 3 to 10. Uh, the story that he opens out for the Ephesians, those he calls in verse 1, the saints in Ephesus. It's the story for them as it is for us. The saints, those who've been set apart, those who've Uh, made a commitment to live inside this story, inside the one of whom these things are said, in him, in him, under him. Uh, As you leave this morning, uh, do please uh, take with you a copy of the term card. And you'll see that on that, that we've uh, entitled uh, this series in Ephesians, The One Show. Because it is the process in which God shows to the world that there is one Lord of heaven and earth, of the different peoples in the earth, of the church in all its diversity, nonetheless one Lord. And so it's the one show. It's all about Jesus We are chosen and adopted before all time, forgiven and graced in the blood of Christ. 
We are facing the end times in Christ. And all that is what it is to be the saints. Chosen and adopted before all time, forgiven and graced in the blood of Christ, facing the end times in Christ. All that's what it means. Let me finish with two quick thoughts. It's easy to review verses 3 to 10 and forget the word with which verse 3 starts. Praise. Praise. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a, a declaration of praise. We mustn't forget then, as we learn to appreciate what's going on in God's choosing before all time, affecting that choice in redemption, uniting things under Christ. As we seek to understand it, we must not forget what it's all for. It is in order that God is praised. Not just our songs and hymns of worship, important as they are, and Ephesians will speak of them, but it is the opening of the mouth to declare to believers and unbelievers alike what God has done. I don't know if this works for you, but I I thought of it this way. It's not that we say different things to believers and unbelievers. It is that to believers and unbelievers, we say the same thing. We declare, we open up the one single mystery of God's purposes in Christ. And that causes believers to serve, and it causes unbelievers to swerve from one course to another. The reaction may be different, whether you serve or swerve, but it's the one thing that we declare, what God has done in Jesus Christ. And it's pra- that's our praise. So whether we're singing in church some remarkably upbeat, drum-driven song, Alleluia, or whether we are out in our workplace or our place of learning, working desperately hard to explain to someone who seems uh, not to get it, what it is that God is up to. It's all praise. In Christ, we enjoy every spiritual blessing. Let's not forget that it's supposed to lead to praise. Secondly, our every spiritual blessing is in Christ, resulting in perseverance. In verse 1, I'm going to ask you to change page in a moment. In verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul addresses himself uh, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, those who've kept the faith, those who are persevering, those who are keeping going. Then flick over to the very end of the letter, to chapter 6, it's page 1177. Chapter 6 and verse 24, grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Those who've persevered, those who are faithful. The praise of God arises from the lives of those who are faithful, who love the Lord with an undying love. It's not just an observation that that love doesn't end, but it's about the kind of love that is faithful and undying, a love that changes the life of everyone who professes it. That's what it is to persevere. Let's pray.
Lord, in the stars, a president can see your glory. In the stars, an AIDS orphan can understand what glory means. And yet, before you made the stars, your glory was to choose us. May our lives in perseverance be lived in praise of such a God for whom past and present and future in Christ are all in all. And so may we serve. Amen.